0: Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. So today we'll be speaking with Dan Buettner, who brought the concept of Blue Zones to the world.
1: Yeah, his uh, writings have really uh, been extremely popular, and I think he's done a great deal to foster healthy longevity and also put into action a lot of what he's uh, observed in his travels.
0: Yeah, I think his work helping cities become healthier is really fascinating.
1: Well, let's talk to him.
0: Listeners, you may notice some bird noise when Dan speaks, and that's because he is in beautiful Miami, Florida, with the door open. Dan Buettner is a National Geographic Explorer and the author of the best-selling book, The Blue Zones, as well as Blue Zones Kitchen, The Blue Zone Solution, and The Blue Zones of Happiness. Welcome, Dan. It's a pleasure and honor to, to be with you. I'm so glad that you're here to join us. And it just has to start with, tell us what Blue Zones are and maybe their implications for longevity.
2: Blue Zones was a collaboration between the National Institutes on Aging, National Geographic and me to identify the parts of the world where people live the longest and then reverse engineer what they're doing in a sense. So instead of trying to look for the secret to longevity in a petri dish or a test tube, we found verified populations that, who have achieved the outcomes we wanted. And then by bringing another team in to find out what correlates with that high life expectancy or centenarian high centenarian rate, and look for the common denominators, we feel like we have a pretty good idea of uh, some lessons that the rest of us might want to follow if we want to live long.
0: So, Andy, you have visited, I think, many of the blue zones, and you specifically wrote about Okinawa and Sardinia in your book on healthy aging. What were your takeaways?
1: Well, I went to Okinawa some years ago and was very struck by the different cultural value placed on aging there compared to our society. The very old people were honored, valued, made to feel part of the community. And it seemed to me that that was the major factor that accounted for the differences that I saw there. I mean, obviously there were so many lifestyle factors that promoted healthy aging. They had a fabulous diet, rich in antioxidants. They were physically active. They lived in a place that had clean air and water. But all that seemed to me to be secondary to the cultural value placed on aging. And that seems such a contrast to what I see here.
2: Yeah, you're right. I mean, we tend to celebrate youth here in the United States. And in Okinawa, the biggest year of your life is your 96th birthday. The whole village will turn out and celebrate that. So older people are honored, their wisdom is harnessed, they continue to be part of the active participants in the family instead of warehousing them in a retirement home. Their resiliency, their wisdom is put to work in raising children and cooking the food, keeping the food traditions alive. You know, there's something called the grandmother effect that has even showed that a home with a grandparent in there, actually the children have lower rates of mortality and disease. so it's a wonderful virtuous
1: circle. Yeah, Victoria, you've heard me say that in traditional Okinawan society, a common cause of sibling fighting is over who is going to get to take care of the aging parents. <laughs> a little different from what we see that. here. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> so that is yeah. such a huge societal difference, that perspective on how valuable life is as life proceeds. What do you think are the other societal factors that make such a difference.
2: So you bring up a really good point about the societal factors. And I agree with Andy in that that those are, I would say, major driver to longevity. Okinawa, their vocabulary does not include the word retirement, which I really think is a, a powerful idea. So there's no kind of artificial punctuation between your life, your productive life and your life of repose. And in Japan anyway, The highest mortality rates post-retirement are among policemen and professors, people with really high status over there, and suggesting strongly that having a sense of purpose is also very important. And Okinawans don't have a word for retirement, but they have a word, ikigai, which roughly means the reason for which I wake up in the morning. And I suspect, Andy, you and I would violently agree on the importance of having a strong sense of purpose when it comes to longevity.
1: Yeah. And also, I think in my experience, and I think there are also statistics to bear this out, with men, especially here, how many within a year of retirement develop a serious illness or die? I um, mean, that's just a very common pattern.
2: I think the second most dangerous year of your life, most dangerous years, year you die. I mean, year you're born, actually. <laughs> But the year of retirement, there seems to be a a mortality spike. The other interesting, you know, there's a lot of talk lately about loneliness in the country here. Not having three friends you can count on is associated with about eight fewer years of life expectancy. In Okinawa, they have this wonderful social construct known as a MOAI, M-O-A-I, which is a committed social circle originally formed centuries ago because they didn't have banks. So people came together and you know, four or five people, they threw money together every time they met. So somebody needed to seed to start the season, the growing season, they could count on their Moai because banks wouldn't give them loans. But that has morphed really into these beautiful social circles with a, a security net underneath. And when you do well you're expected to share and and when things go south, these Moai's are there to step in either financially or psychologically to kind of uh, pick up the slack.
1: We should also note that in Okinawa, in recent years, longevity has plummeted, and this has been attributed mainly to uh, greatly increased consumption of American type fast food. So in some some of these cultures, the phenomena that we've written about, they're fragile and are subject to change.
0: One of the things that I have really enjoyed learning about, Dan, is the work you're doing to help societies, cities, governments create the equivalent of blue zones and to line up the factors so that doing the healthy thing, doing the thing that's pro-longevity is the easy thing to do. And I'd love to hear some of that work and where you think you've been most successful.
2: So Annie brings up, you both bring up very good points. So when I started working in Okinawa in 1999, it was producing the longest lived disability free people in the history of the human race. And now they're the least healthy prefecture in Japan. And you start asking yourself, "Well, why is that? And I attribute it largely to the fact that the American base has attracted this forest of fast food restaurants. The biggest a and root beer stand in the world is in Okinawa. And the GIs have also brought this idea of SPAM. I don't like to pick on one product, but it is a very high sodium. And they've adopted the SPAM with zeal. And uh, as soon as they start adopting the standard American diet or something that looks like a standard American diet, their life expectancy plummets, obesity and diabetes rise. So when the key insight in all blue zones, these places are genetically heterogeneous. So they're a, a melting pot. They don't have any genetic advantage over the rest of us listening right now. They don't have better discipline. They don't have greater sense of responsibility. They don't have better diets or better education. So you start asking yourself, why are they living eight to 10 years longer than the rest of us without chronic disease? And the realization I had was that they live in environments where the cheapest and most accessible foods is peasant food. It's mostly whole plant-based food. They're nudged into movement every 20 minutes, every time they go to work or a friend's house or out to eat at occasions, a walk. The option to be lonely doesn't really exist because there's a societal expectation to participate in the daily community life, parties, religious, being out in the street. And so based on that insight, 12 years ago, I developed a population health blueprint for cities that would methodically go through all facets of city life and optimize that environment to nudge people into eating more whole plant-based food moving more socializing more and then the other big point and we do this citywide is give people purpose workshop help them identify their values their passions and what they're good at and then put them to work and we've had extraordinarily luck dropping the, lowering the obesity rate of entire cities by adopting insights from Blue Zones.
0: So that's really good news for a country that's struggling, obviously, with an obesity epidemic, as well as all of the consequences. Which cities have been most successful and why is it? What, what did they do right?
2: I would say the most successful large city is Fort Worth, Texas. They've been with us for five years and they've seen a BMI or basically obesity rate drop by 3%, smoking drop by 6%. You may say to yourself, big deal, that doesn't sound like much, but the rest of Texas has gained weight and just a, a uh, lowering of 3% of BMI, average BMI, occasions about a quarter of a billion dollars of healthcare savings per year. And those are numbers from Gallup, not from me. We always have third-party measurements. And the approach we take, we come in with three teams. The first team is a policy team. And we have aggregated best practices and policies to favor fruits and vegetables and whole foods over fast food and junk food and junk food marketing, to favor the pedestrian over the motorist, and to favor the non-smoker over the smoker. And we don't come in heavy-handed telling cities they have to Adopt these. We come in with menus of 30 of them and say, "Look, if you want to use our time, we're here for you. Don't waste it. We won't waste yours. But we expect you to come to consensus around a half a dozen feasible and effective policies that we know have worked elsewhere for your city. And we can usually get probably 20 policies implemented in a five-year tenure. We're there, which make an enormous, according to the CDC, the most. Cost effective way to make a population healthier is through policy. But we also then have a blue zone certification program for restaurants, grocery stores, workplaces, schools, and churches. Once again, it's sort of menu driven, and we have 30 or so different evidence based tweaks and designs and policies that these places can commit to. And if they do 75% of them, we give blue zone certification. And then we have a third team who over the course of five years manages to get about 15% of the adult population, which there's some tipping point science around 15%, to optimize their own homes and their social networks. And between the people, places, and policy perfect storm, we can usually exert enough positive pressure on changing the environment. In every city we've been to, and we've worked in 54 cities, every city that's hired us, we've managed to lower their BMI and also raise life satisfaction as measured by Gallup.
1: That's very impressive. I think that's just terrific work. And I wonder, are you up against any vested interests that work against this? So we've
2: had a little pushback from certain political parties that favor, for whom freedom is really important. This notion that we're limiting junk food choices doesn't sit well with everybody. But you know, we we always couch it as an option. It's like you don't have to pick any of these policies. You've asked us to come help make your city healthier. So that's what we're here for. And Andy, we're really careful ahead of time to interview the mayor, the city council, the chamber of commerce, the CEOs, the superintendent of schools, and be very transparent. You know, we are here to reshape your environment so the healthy choices are salient. And the unhealthy choices don't get as much emphasis. So if they don't like that idea, we, don't, we just say, you should keep doing what you're doing, and we go elsewhere. So we've had about 400 cities request us, and we've said yes to 54 of them. And most of the ones we've said no to prefer to take another approach.
0: Well, I don't know if Tucson, the city that we're in, ever contacted you, but it would be wonderful. Who funds this? They're publicly supported, but privately funded.
2: So we're funded through either a local health foundation. Often cities uh, sold their hospital, but they have a a mission to make the community healthier. They'll fund us. Blue Cross Blue Shield plans have been big funders. And then hospital systems. And we hold our feet to the fire. We put our fees at risk if we don't lower... The BMI. The BMI is sort of the North Star. You know, in a city of a, a million people, if you lower the BMI of that city by 1%, it occasions about 19,000 fewer heart attacks over time, many thousands of fewer cases of diabetes. And Andy probably has better data on this than I do, but at least one hospital system we work with says that an average heart attack costs about $120,000. So you don't have to prevent many heart attacks before this becomes a real cost-effective approach for a community.
0: Yeah, and the health economics data is so helpful. Andy, you have often spoken about another possible solution, which is, can you make doing the right thing fun? And I know you sometimes pointed people to a website called thefuntheory.com and how our society could use more of that.
1: It's .org. And it was an advertising campaign of, of Volkswagen Sweden. And I've described this, it's worth seeing, but the idea is to make healthier choices more fun for people. But the other, another possibility that I've talked about is to try to make healthy choices more fashionable. And I think it would be terrific if we could enlist celebrities in various fields to get behind this movement, that healthy choices, that this is the in thing to do, that it's what you know, the people that we look up to are doing. So I'd love to see a campaign of that sort.
0: It seems some of that is happening because I think millennials, for example, are more likely to have the kind of environmental consciousness that suggests that they eat either a vegetarian or a vegan style diet. I think that this next generation coming is more tuned into health.
2: I've seen those statistics too. I think my generation, about 3% self-identified as vegetarian or vegan. And now the generation that's just graduating from college right now, I've seen numbers as high as 15% identifying as vegetarian and vegan. And that is definitely directionally exciting because it has ramifications for not only health, but the environment and animal cruelty for people who care about those things.
0: Dan, what did this lifelong commitment to studying Blue Zones, what effect has it had on your own life or choices?
2: I used to eat a lot of animal products. I eat almost none now, no meat. I eat mostly whole food, plant-based. I am naturally social, and I've discovered through this process that actually connecting socially, even casual, low-intensity social interactions are predictive of longevity. I've reconnected with my faith though not as much as my mother <laughs> as I would. And, you know, I'm really conscious about one statistic that really stuck out to me. You know, your zip code is a bigger predictor of your life expectancy than just about anything else. You take uh, many counties in Kentucky, and the life expectancy there is 20 years less than they are in places like Boulder, Colorado, and uh, Santa Barbara. So, That's not a coincidence. That's not because people in Boulder are some inherently better people or smarter or better disciplined, or better Americans. It's just that in the cities where people live a long time, they're walkable and bikeable. There's easy access to nature. They've tried to mute traffic so there's not as much pollution, noise and accidents. There's easy access to healthy food. So I proactively, you know, I'm sitting in my the southern tip of Miami Beach right now, which is very walkable. And you know, later on, you know, I'll show you what I I'm looking at right now. I'll be out there swimming in about two hours. And you know, I probably wouldn't be swimming if I were back up in Minneapolis. But Minneapolis is actually a walkable community. I also spend time there, so I'm very conscious about living in places where I mindlessly will move more, connect more, and eat better food. And I that is the big opportunity.
1: Dan, I just saw statistics within Tucson of a 20-year difference in longevity between zip codes in South Tucson and zip codes in the foothills of the Catalina Mountains. And it's a complex of factors. It's, you know, it's everything from noise, pollution, high crime, dietary choices. You know, it's a lot of things, but it certainly points up the the disparities based on economic and social factors.
2: And this is exactly what we do. And I don't think we do enough. It's very easy to identify many, or if not most, of the factors in a place where people are living longer and then present them or put them to work in these communities where their life expectancy challenged. So, you know, you could there's that something called a complete street policy. Every City manager since the Eisenhower administration has been trained to get as many cars down a street as possible, not really thinking about the human. But when you design streets for humans with a wide sidewalk, a safe sidewalk, trees, bike lanes, and narrow lanes with reasonable speed limits, you can see bump in physical activity levels of that whole community by 20%, commensurate drop in accidents and asthma from breathing the fumes and just the stress of being around motorized transportation and the roar. If you thought birds were bad, you should hear, you know, (laughs) live on a busy street.
1: What's your assessment of the impact of the pandemic on all of this? How much has that reduced the opportunity for social interaction, impacted eating habits adversely and so forth?
2: I think it goes two ways. First of all, as you probably know, life expectancy has dropped by about a year because of the pandemic. You know, we life expectancy upward since about 1900. And now it's dipped to actually about a year and a half in the last three years, largely due to the pandemic. On the other hand, I do think, you know, every time you go out to eat, you eat about 300 more calories than you would if you ate at home. And people are starting to cook at home. There's been a sourdough bread craze, which I don't think is a bad idea. In many cases, it's forced families to come together. And, you know, I know losing a job is incredibly traumatic, but according to Gallup, only about 31% of Americans actually find purpose in their work. And I think, you know, the restaurants can't find people to work there anymore. I think a lot of people have lost their job, reassessed and said, I'm going out for something that speaks to my heart more. So I think there's a chance that while we're experiencing a, a temporary dip in life expectancy that five years from now, we'll look back at the good old days of the pandemic. Um, I know that's <laughs> probably a bold prediction, but you know hardship often yields strange blessings. I'm not dismissing the pain and I'm not dismissing the, the sickness and the death, but I'm hoping for a silver lining.
0: I have a different question for you, which is, I've always been curious about what it means to be a National Geographic Explorer.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it
2: basically, you get paid for being a professional truant. You know those kids who <laughs> played hunky hockey in school? Well, I've taken it to a whole new level. <laughs> so you're
0: Ferris Bueller,
2: huh? <laughs> Bueller's, yeah. Instead of Ferris Bueller's day off, it's Dan Bueller's life off. <laughs> You know, I write frequently for National Geographic. In fact, I have a, a brand new book out this week. Uh, it's published today, in fact, called The Blue Zone Challenge, which takes all the things I learned about how you optimize your surroundings, shows people how to set up their home. So the healthy choice is the easy choice. But for about 16 years now, I've regularly written for their magazine and books, and I've led about 16 expeditions. And, you know, once you hang around the National Geographic Society enough, you wear them down and they give you a title.
3: Body of Wonder is produced by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. Internationally recognized for innovative health and wellness programs, evidence-based research and clinical standards. The center offers listeners a wide range of free resources to live and maintain a healthy lifestyle, including online learning, meditations and short videos. To find out more, go to azcim.org slash podcast. That's azcim.org slash podcast.
2: There's a lot of discussion about diet. There's keto and paleo and vegan. And I'm wondering what your definition is of the optimal diet for longevity.
1: I think, first of all, exclusion of as much as possible refined, processed, and manufactured foods. I think that's the overriding recommendation. Then I think it is obviously good to eat lower on the food chain, to reduce the percentage of animal foods in the diet, to eat a a wide variety of fresh produce, especially vegetables of good quality. I think other than that, I think those are the best general recommendations that I can give. And I think there is no, I see so much. Diet fascism today of people saying you have to eat this way, you have to eat that, and also a tendency to eat very restrictive diets. I think the keto diet is a very unhealthy diet. I think the paleo and keto eating to exclude all grains and beans, I think that 's just silly you know beans are wonderful food they 're cheap, good sources of fiber, protein, slow digesting carbohydrate, and to tell people those are bad foods, I think is very silly. So that's just my general sense. And and I, I think there is no one right optimum diet. People are different biochemically. We come from different ethnic and cultural traditions, and that has to be allowed for. But as I say, I think the overriding concern is to not eat refined, processed, and manufactured food as much as possible. Probably to also, I would say, in our country, we're in such a mess with regard to food and diet and the consequences of it. It's hard to know even where to start. But where I would start is to try to get people to not drink sweet liquids. You know, if we could make that one step, and it's not just soda, it's fruit juice, it's energy drinks, it's you know, sweetening coffee and tea, it's all of that one step would put us significantly ahead of the curve.
2: I uh, did a meta-analysis, which is sort of a worldwide average of all five blue zones. That So if you want to know what a centenarian ate to live to be 100, you can't just ask them because they don't remember. If I, if I asked you what you had for lunch a week ago Tuesday, you probably couldn't tell me. But we found 155 dietary surveys done in all five blue zones over the last eight years and aggregated those. And uh, Walter Willett from Harvard helped me do this. So it was done with some rigor. I wrote up the uh, results in the Blue Zone Kitchen, which is sort of a diet, my diet. And we found that 90 to 100% of the calories they took were whole plant-based. They ate meat on average, traditionally speaking, before the, you know, the NW root beer, the five times a month. Meat was a celebratory food. And um, you probably saw that in Okinawa, you know, with the pork. And, not nearly as much as you think most of the blue zones are actually inland they don't eat a lot of fish but the the five pillars of every longevity diet in the world were whole grains rice corn and wheat sardinians the longest lived men in the history of the world until 1950 60 percent of their calories came from wheat various kinds of wheat sourdough breads pastas etc greens interestingly Greens are cheap and they grow, you know, the kind of stuff we'd weed whack in our backyard. Many of them have 10 times the antioxidants of wine. Tubers in Okinawa until 1970, about 60% of their dietary intake came from emo, which is a purple sweet potato, which grew abundantly and cheap. Nuts and then beans. I actually think, you know, if there is a superfood, and I want to ask you about superfoods after this, but in every blue zone they're eating about a cup of beans a day and i've seen research suggesting a cup of beans a day would probably convey about four extra years of life expectancy over unhealthy protein but what do you think is superfoods well do you think there's such
1: I, a thing i think it's marketing hype mostly and also i like to remind people that we've got plenty of superfoods right at home i mean things like blueberries and strawberries now, those I consider those superfoods or even some of our common nuts. You don't have to buy these expensive, exotic things. So I think it's mostly a marketing term. And Dan, just to be contrarian, I have to tell you, like, I found a quote from a 106-year-old Russian woman who was asked about the secret of her longevity. And her answer was, I never eat vegetables.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, the, the thing is, I remember this great quote you, you wrote a foreword for the Wilcoxes' uh, book. Yeah. And you said something like if you ask centenarians, they'll say everything from something to cigars. But the point is you, you can't ask a single centenarian and extrapolate. And as Jay Oshansky, the famous demographer, once said, you can no more ask a hundred-year-old how he got to be old as you can ask a tall man how he got to be tall. Uh-huh. And, and <laughs> our approach at National Geographic is we, Basically, it's mostly epidemiology and anthropology. We find out what the population does and you sort of get a recipe of what the population does. And then you kiss enough frogs until you find (laughs) that (laughs) prince or princess whose life lines up with what the population does. And then we profile that person as a way to explain what this what these people are doing. But, yeah, it's fun. People are but people, you know, you put that third digit in people's lives. And the certain fascination ensues people People are interested in hundred year olds you know ninety nine year olds are yawners, but a day <laughs> later <laughs> you know. so how about you know I get asked a lot about supplements, and I know vitamin b twelve is important for vegans, but are, are there any other
1: supplements you recommend people take? I think it's good to take mix of antioxidants if you're not eating sufficient fruits and vegetables which are your best sources of them. I recommend vitamin D supplementation because I think so many people are deficient and that has so many benefits. I mean, those are the main ones. I think ideally you should be able to get what you need from your diet. I
2: totally agree. Nobody in any blues, by the way, are taking supplements.
0: We have a conference coming up in May and one of the topics is about the science of aging and are there either medicines or dietary supplements that would promote healthy longevity and protect your brain, reduce the risk of diabetes. Some of the things that are being researched are metformin, rapamycin, supplements like resveratrol. So it'll be interesting to see whether the biohackers are correct and that there are some things that one can do in addition to all of the healthy lifestyle that we've been talking about that will promote long life
2: yeah i see there's there's two problems with that pursuit the first one is if you look at the available data on people taking supplements or even their prescribed pills the recidivism curve is pretty steeply angled downward in other words people start taking them and then forget to take them after a while so even if these things do work, I seriously question whether or not people will take them long enough to make a difference. And secondly, the type of longevity Andy and I talk about, it's not just more years, it's more good years. Eating a healthy diet, connecting socially, knowing your sense of purpose. These are all things that bring joy to life. And I can continue to believe that pursuing healthy longevity is, well, maybe more, I don't know, more worthy, but just as important to pursuit.
0: Well, Dan, thank you so very much for your work on the Blue Zones, for bringing it to so many people's attention, for the work you're doing to create healthier cities. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. If uh, People have more
2: questions. Uh, my handle on Instagram is at Dan Butner. I'd uh, be very happy. to. I'm very good at answering people's questions. And if I may just mention, I have this new book out today called The Blue Zone Challenge four weeks to a longer, better life. And I appreciate, first of all, honored to meet you. And I would love to help if I can ever help. And I'd love to be in touch with you. And hopefully we can meet face to face.
0: Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions for Andy, myself, or for our guests. You can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520-621-3950. 520-621-3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, azcim.org podcast. Again, azcim.org podcast. We will review your questions and try to answer as many as possible on our programs.
3: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Body of Wonder brought to you by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. If you like the show, please rate us five stars, follow the show, and leave a review. To learn more about integrative healing and the center, go to azcim.org/podcast. That's azcim.org/podcast.